In 2017, Danica Rome made history as the first out trans person elected to a state legislature in the United States. And now she has done something even more radical as a politician by writing a memoir that is not, how should I put this, a memoir that isn't boring. I mean that honestly. Most books by politicians, especially those who write them while in office, they're usually just slogs, overwhelmingly, profoundly boring. But for Danica, this is a woman who, from the very beginning, she wasn't trying to hide things from her past or present a false image of herself to the public. I guess that's what happens when you're the former frontwoman of a thrash metal band who's famous for their partying and songs like Drunk on Arrival. Danica has always just laid it out there, and that authenticity is on full display in her new memoir, Burn the Page. It is a record of her most intimate, hilarious, sometimes beer-soaked moments, all which led to her history-making career in the Virginia House of Delegates. So from The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A with Danica Rome. In 2016, before you ran for office, you started driving to the Capitol to advocate against anti-LGBTQ legislation that was being proposed. And you write in the book that this was your first time crossing over from being a journalist to an activist. I wanted to talk about why that specific moment was for you that sparked you, because anti-LGBTQ bills were not new. So like, why these specific ones then? Well, the most important part of this is I had left my job after nine years, two months, and two weeks as the lead reporter of the Gainesville Times and the Prince William Times because the next General Assembly session was in 2016. I had started work as the new editor of the Montgomery County Sentinel right over the river in Maryland over in Rockville. I didn't have the inherent conflict of interest that would have come with advocating at that point because it wouldn't have conflicted with my job and my responsibilities. And so it was really a very practical thing to do in terms of its timing. And in terms of where I was in my life, I loved being a reporter. I loved the newsroom. I loved, you know, just, you know, holding people accountable for a living. It was just, that's what I loved doing. And at the same time, I was very much starting to get burned out. And I also knew that where I was in my life at that point, I was 31 by the end of 2015 going into 2016, and I was out. I didn't have to live with that fear of being outed, that fear that you have when you're closeted or being afraid of people in positions of authority, that's very different compared to LGBTQ kids, for example. For them to go up to legislators, that's frightening for many of them. And even for a lot of adults going up and speaking to legislators, frightening. I had been interviewing these people for nine years. I knew all of them, <laughs> at least from the Prince William delegation anyway. I was like, I already had pre-existing relationships with these folks. And so I was like, all right, well, I know who, who I can talk to and who I can't. So yeah, I drove, to, I drove down there four times in early 2016, fighting against nine anti-LGBTQ bills. And at the time, Virginia and Tennessee were vying for which is the most anti-LGBTQ bills in the country, right? It's not the deluge that you see today of more than 200 anti-LGBTQ bills across the country right now. This was something where it's just like, wow, you know, some very specific people in parts of the South were really, you know, kind of, you know, pushing ahead on this. 
And you know, that maybe uh, as a trick of fate, I ended up like throwing up on the side of like uh, Ninth Street uh, right before the Bay Street right by the Capitol once. I was just like at the end of a you know an advocacy day. I was so tired, and that's honest to God how I felt too. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just like those trips down to Richmond were so nauseating. But at the same time, I also felt that the work I was doing was very necessary. And you know, in the book, I thought it was so interesting that you wrote this quote. Trans women who put themselves in the public sphere are immediately judged on this criteria regardless of age. Are you fuckable? It's wrong. It shouldn't be like that. And yet I cannot even begin to underscore the reality of this. End quote. Was that something that you learned when you entered the public sphere or you knew and like expected it going into it? I drew that from an episode of Inside Amy Schumer where she's like, you know, walking in the park more or less, and she sees Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Patricia Arquette, and Tina Fey, and they're all having picnics together. And she's like, oh, hey, what's going on here? Oh, my God, it's so amazing to see these amazing women together. Like, what are you celebrating? And they're like, oh, well, it's uh, Julia's last fuckable day. And they're like, what? What? It's like, that's the day where media says that you are no longer, you know, considered as such, right? I got the satire and everything, but from the time I saw that, I really understood that while cisgender women tend to be sexualized, transgender women tend to be fetishized. If we don't fall into certain, you know, certain like aesthetics that people are looking for, the harshness of return and absolute vulgarity that we get back is far worse than the phrase I used in this book. The sort of shit that I've had to hear as a trans woman in politics is just, I mean, and it's relentless. It's every day, right? Of people saying really awful stuff based on aesthetics. I was just really self-conscious of that at the start, you know, from the time where I did my photo shoot on December 30th, 2016, you know, before my January 3rd, 2017 launch my campaign. I knew that if I didn't look my absolute best, it was going to just be a torrent of hate and that that hate could then influence the narrative about my race and about my candidacy and everything. It was just something I was very conscious of at the, at the start, and I was certainly proven right. There's no question about it. And when you say the vitriol against you, the hate that you heard about your transness, it was all in regards to like how you look primarily, not like other aspects? Oh my God, Jeffrey, if you know, like I would get news story after news story about my plans to fix Route 28. Or, you know, just like, hell, even in the metal community, which is so near and dear to my heart, they would run stories about my candidacy or they would run stories about even after I won the election. Any time you read the comments, you're always told, don't read the comments. I read the comments. Any time it just turned into battle royale over gender. It didn't matter what I was talking about in the article. That's where the comments would go. But here's the catch. I still unseated a 13-term, 26-year incumbent, right? If I was able to do that, it means my message did actually get somewhere. People did actually hear it. They penetrated the, the noise. Well, and you've also won re-election twice. Yeah, that's so right. So you've won three elections yes. as a trans candidate. And I use that phrase because you say the first election, you were always Danica Rome, the transgender candidate, in quotation marks. Um, three elections later, are you still the trans candidate or are you just a candidate? Yeah, it's gone down where more, at least in Virginia, my name comes up before my gender does for news coverage. 
My gender comes up in news coverage if the issue is related to gender. And sometimes out of nowhere, they'll be like, Deanna Grove, who's transgender, had French toast this morning. You know, like, <laughs> like sometimes you get those non sequiturs and stuff. But, uh, you know, the most flagrant attempt, you know, the most flagrant version of this was uh, I wrote about in the book was like, there was a USA 9 headline. And it wasn't like it was a negative story or anything. It was just like, transgender candidate just wants to get rid of traffic. And I was just like, what the hell does my gender have to do with me wanting to get rid of traffic? What the effing hell? The district you represent is a very small part of the country. I think that District 13 is less than 100,000 people. No, it's actually about 101,000. Yeah. Okay, 101,000. So despite that size, though, you've become a national figure. When it comes to actually winning constituent votes, does that national profile help or hurt you? It doesn't hurt. No. You know, some people try to make it hurt by being like, Dana Girl wants to be a celebrity. And I'm like, yeah, Dana Girl also passed 32 bills in the law, including 10 to feed hungry kids. And I'm also, I've also had more than 30 local town hall events here. You know, I'm accessible to my constituents. I show up. You'll see me at every high school graduation next month. Yeah, I'm constantly around the community. Well, tell me this. We are seeing a wrath of anti-LGBTQ bills and legislation around the country, specifically anti-trans bills are the bulk of them. And that includes Virginia. You had a bill proposed earlier this year. I mean, I didn't have a bill, but no, Virginia had, yeah, there were some anti-trans bills that came up in Virginia. They, they died in committee. But only one Republican voted with all the Democrats in order to kill them, well, one of those bills. And what was also interesting was one of the other Republican delegates who had like a bathroom bill, he ended up talking to me because it was part of a much larger bill. And after we had a very long chat together, he ended up striking that part of the bill. And then he just ended up pulling his bill together. You know, I do like to think that my presence in the legislature is helpful in that regard. And that's what I was kind of wondering. Well, I mean, you know, I've got good relationships, you know, with people across the aisle where I try to be respectful, even if they don't know the issues or anything. But you have to delineate between someone who's willing to work in good faith and someone who's in it for the show and people who just genuinely don't care what the consequences are. They're doing it to advance your political career. And that absolutely exists. And other than they'll just be true believers who absolutely believe that discriminating against children is the right thing to do. And those people, we just need to either unseat them or we need to make sure they're in the minority so their bills die. And so in Virginia, you know, these state legislatures can get to know delicate Danica Rome and have their mind changed. And I just wonder about like the other 49 states who don't have somebody like you. No, that's not true. Okay, Sarah McBride. Let's go. You get Sarah McBride in Delaware as the first out and see trans state senator in the country. You have three out trans people in the New Hampshire House of Representatives. Jerry Cannon, who won election night for a school board seat the same day I did in 2017, but then she also flipped a state house seat the next year, 2018. You got Lisa Bunkner also in uh, New Hampshire, and you got Stacey Lee Lawton, who is also in New Hampshire. So that's five of us right there. Then you've got Brianna Titone over in Colorado. You've got Stephanie Byers, she's the first native trans person to be elected. She's in Kansas. And then you've got Taylor Small, who's the youngest trans legislator in the country. And she's still in her mid-20s, which is just incredible. She's awesome. Super proud of her up in Vermont. There's eight of us. So I'll be honest, I only knew about half those names, the other half I didn't. And ideally, you know, we'd live in a world where a trans person winning an election would not spark a headline. But I think that when we see these anti-trans bills that I mentioned being proposed in states where you do not live, it's easy to feel helpless. 
when I look at Texas or Florida, it's like, I don't know the hell I can do all the way over here from New York. So for everyone like this, for the states where you do not live, what are one or two things that people can do to help? Donate money to candidates who are trying to flip seats. That's the first thing that you can absolutely do. My challengers in the Republican Party of Virginia, they love getting on my case where they're just like, oh my God, Dana Grove has national support for our campaigns. And I'm like, I'll tell y'all what, when y'all catch up to me in local contributions from Manassas, Manassas Park, Gainesville, and Haymarket, I'll then entertain the idea of even engaging with you on the larger argument. But until you catch up to me locally, I don't even want to hear. Don't even want to hear it. So I totally hear that. However, like elections are in the future and like in the immediate, are there anything to be done? Help candidates in the meantime, keep in mind, there are always elections every single year. There are always state legislative elections. Wherever you are, there's always going to be one. You know, in Virginia, we're up in odd years. Most of the rest of the country is up in even years. There's always something that you can do with that. Now, other things that you can do, number one, make sure that your state is actually as supportive as it possibly could be for LGBTQ equality. And that includes testifying in subcommittee and, you know, in your area talking or in, you know, in your state and talking to your state legislators. And here's the thing that you can also do that will be really helpful for these awful, awful policies where they're, where some of these legislators are trying to criminalize their own constituents, such as parents for providing gender affirming care for their children. You can pass a safe haven law in your state that says that if that person, you know, needs and seeks medical care in your state, that you're not going to end up having to extradite them, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Like this is supposed to be United States. We need a federal policy so that children aren't being attacked for having health care. It's the most ridiculous thing on, on the planet. Just awful. More broadly, we fought for so long for visibility for the trans community, but now we have it and trans folks have become political targets. So the theory was if you increase visibility, that'll automatically lead to acceptance. And yet we did not gain that. Like, did we not get visibility in the correct way? Was that theory not correct? No, I don't think that's true at all. No, that no, it's an inaccurate theory. If that was if that was true, I wouldn't be in office. If that was true, then dozens of us across the country wouldn't be in office. No, it's just there's a right-wing backlash. Look, trans rights are a lagging indicator of gay rights. Where gay rights go, trans rights will follow. And as the country has become more welcoming of gay people, and which is absolutely a thing that's a product of visibility, you know, more gay rights have been, you know, protected, you know, year in and year out. Whereas trans people, look, when gay people start, you know, winning, you know, marriage equality and stuff, and that which also very much affects trans people, of course. But, you know, the... The narrative about it was, you know, based on gay marriage, right? Well, when that happened, well, the right wing's got to target someone, right? They got to make someone feel bad about themselves. So who they go after next? Trans kids. That's their whole obsession and, you know, what they care about right now. But uh, since 2016, you see a lot of corporations are like, oh, well, we won't, we don't support discrimination. Like, yeah, we'll prove it, prove it. Now there have been two chicken shit to go and do anything about it. I would say strongly say in that regard that corporate America needs to get off of its ass and actually defend its LGBTQ employees and the, and their families because right now they're doing a pretty crappy job at it. I want to go back to something you just said, though, a couple minutes ago, which was that where gay rights lead, trans rights follow. And I think that, like, the argument or the pushback there is, like, why does it have to be a lagging thing? Like, why cannot, like, gay rights and trans rights go together? Oh, it's simple. It's very, very simple because more people know gay people in their life than they know trans people. Just statistically, there's more 
out gay people than there are out trans people. And because of that, that's where that visibility and social acceptance comes from. Because as people know gay people who are being vulnerable enough to be visible to put themselves out there, they say, well, hey, I have a gay friend. I have a gay brother. I have a gay sister. I have a gay whoever in my life, right? And I want, you know, equal protection for them. Whereas it's much less often that they know someone who's out as trans in their life. That's why even though our community very much has to stick together and never drop the T from the LG, LGB equation here, we very, very much have to understand of where society is at large in terms of our recognition. And very often, the first impression someone's had of trans people through media consumption is that of a caricature or that of a villain. The way I kind of see all of that is when that's someone's introduction, then we have to disassemble and you know recreate the reality of who we are. Because way too many people, when they hear transgender, they just think of a cisgender guy wearing a skirt wanting to use the bathroom. It's just like, whoa, hold on a second. You know, like, hey, that's not transgender. <laughs> you know, it's a whole world of other conversation. We need a lot of help in trans world right now because we're disproportionately being targeted. Not to say gay kids aren't, by the way, with all the don't say gay bills and shit. You know, like that's still very much a thing. And if anything, I hope it, you know, unifies our community, you know, to rally together and unseat some of these people who are doing this stuff and understand that, yes, there are differences between the parties. And yes, majorities absolutely matter. You don't have blue state trifectas where this stuff is happening. Even in the U.S. Senate, where Joe Manchin can drive us absolutely crazy, the world of difference between 50-50 plus one with the vice president versus 50-50 minus one is a world of difference, world of difference in terms of hostility toward us. And with all this, is there something that you think the White House can be doing that they are not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They could instruct the uh, archivist to enshrine the Equal Rights Amendment into the United States Constitution. That would be the easiest thing that they could do to help LGBTQ people as well as women at large because discrimination on account of sex, you know, discrimination on account of sexual orientation and gender identity is inherently discrimination on account of sex. Okay, I love that you brought up the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, because we actually have a question from a listener about that. Let me hit play on that right now. Hello, Danica. It's Kate Kelly. I want people to know that you have a tattoo of the Equal Rights Amendment on your bicep. Can you tell us why the ERA is so important to you personally and how it will protect queer and trans people? Okay, so that is from Kate Kelly, who I know you know. Oh, and her book, Ordinary Equality, by the way, about queer people's contributions to the ERA, that came out the same day as my book, Burn the Page, which is so cool. I'm so happy for Kate. Yes. Okay, so to her question, though, why is the ERA so important to you personally? For me, on a very, very personal story with that, I have my mother's Women's Bicentennial 1976 ERA medallion that she got when she was 24 years old. Keep on, my mom and I, my Republican voting, Fox News watching mother, we agree on three things to public policy. Number one, if you work 40 hours a week, you should be able to afford to take care of yourself. To me, that's $50 an hour. For her, it's 10 whatever. At least we you know, genuinely agree on the concept. Number two, Scottish independence. No one ever sees that one coming. And number three is ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. Which you did. You were the last state. Yeah, that's right. And so in my mom's case, you know, I remember being a kid when she was 
passed up for a promotion, you know, from someone who is far less qualified, who happened to be a man, you know, and I remember her being very upset about that happening at the time where she very much did not show, you know, she never brought negative energy from work home with her. But that day was, you know, not good for her. And when I think about what the Equal Rights Amendment means to me in that larger context, yeah, of course, it's about, you know, protecting, you know, cis women, of course. And at the same time, like I was saying, that when you discriminate on sexual, you know, on sexual orientation or gender identity, you're doing it in a way that basically says you're not conforming to societal views of femininity and masculinity of what those are supposed to be, which inherently means you're discriminating on account of sex. And the tattoo of the quote from the amendment on your arm says what? Yeah, it's a quality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That is the Equal Rights Amendment. I got that done the day before my vote for Virginia to ratify the ERA. And so Virginia, with you whipping votes, was, I believe, was it the 38th state to ratify? 38th. That's right. Yep. And yeah, yeah, I was the uh, unofficially assigned whip for that one where like we don't have like we have our caucus has, you know, you know, whips, you know, structure. But for that specific bill, I made sure or resolution, technically, I made sure every single Democrat in 2019, as well as in 2020, were signed on as co-patrons of the ERA because I wanted to show our caucus was 100% not only unified, but we were willing to put our name behind it before the vote came up. The ERA, I think it's been around for so long that I'll speak personally, I didn't realize like the great impact it could have, especially when it comes to like abortion rights and reproductive rights. And so just like in terms of like a timeline, like we just now need the Congress or Senate to extend the deadline. So there are three things that the federal government could do. The first one is that it comes from the executive branch. The president could simply instruct the, you know, the archivist to just put it in. Because even though there was the deadline that Congress had enacted on it, it was done in the preamble. It was, there is no constitutional provision that says a constitutional amendment shall have a deadline. That is absolutely arbitrary. The second thing that could be done at the legislative level, which is that the United States Senate could pass the same resolution that the House did, which uh, Senators uh, Cardin and Murkowski are carrying, by the way, on a bipartisan basis, to reject that timeline and just accept the three states that have voted for ratification since then. There is also existing precedent of you know some amendments taking centuries, quite literally, to go into the United States Constitution. I think that the big question mark that I have about the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, and in theory, and what I'm told is it would radically change the lives of like women and queer people and trans people and you know all people in our country, and it would solve so many issues. My my question mark is it sounds too good to be true, you know, like I, like that's what I can't like wrap my head around, and yet we're just like waiting for one signature. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I'm not like missing anything. No. Yeah, no, it just broke the brain. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, not to keep bringing up Kate Kelly, who left a voicemail. <laughs> you can bring Kate Kelly up. She's adorable. She's a wonderful person. Yeah, okay, great. So I was reading the piece that Kate and you co-authored, I believe in Teen Vogue, yeah. about the ERA. And I was like, this sounds too good to be true. What am I missing? No, you're not missing anything. Like, no, we, we can solve a lot of problems by, you know, just having that ratification that 38 states have now voted in favor of actually be complete. Yeah, that'd be nice. Wow. 
So in your book, you write about your Catholic upbringing and going to Catholic school. 13 years, yeah. Catholics, though, have a very strict view on abortion. Life begins at conception in their eyes. Was abortion and reproductive rights something that you personally had to evolve on? Oh, to be honest, yeah. When you grow up in a Catholic school and everything, you are never given the other side of the argument about why does someone, why would someone want or need an abortion in the first place? And in Catholic school, they will even tell you the honorable thing to do is to give birth even if her life is in danger because this child is a gift from God and that, you know, that child will be able to carry on that legacy or whatever, blah, blah. That's what I had to deal with when I was in school, okay? Like that was, that was my Catholic school upbringing was no exceptions. Not for rape, not for incest, because they were like, nope, it is murder. It is murder for any time after the time of conception, and that's it. And if you don't want to be pregnant, then don't have sex. I don't think it took that long for me to, you know, get into puberty, where I'm just like, oh, a lot of this is warped. And But at the same time, it sure, you know, was part of what contributed to me not exploring myself until I was 16. Absolutely. You know, which is a lot later than other people. And then you know, give up my V-card until I was 22, not until I was out of college. I don't think that that is crazy late, though, to be honest. (laughs) Not necessarily crazy late in that regard, but like my first kiss with a guy was when I was 26. There's a lot of that, you know, like repression and that just kind of comes up that, you know, I wrote in detail in the book that I, you know, genuinely don't talk about. But in the book, I thought it was something that was going to be relatable for a lot of people, you know, whether or not you're LGBTQ. I think you can relate to the idea that the circumstances of your birth and the circumstances of, you know, how you're raised and the community that you're raised in and the school environment and everything like that, that very much can contribute not only to your own ideology, but to your own rebellion as well. You know, when you push back against some of those things that you don't think make sense to you anymore, don't apply to you. And you also wrote that you decided or thought that you would only come out as trans to your mom if you were marrying somebody or turning 30. Why did those two things make it safe? Because, you know, like when I was uh, my early teens, I was in uh, eighth or ninth grade. And, uh, you know, I went out as a goth woman for a night, you know, for Halloween. The next day, it, it didn't go well. So I just figured at that point that it was going to be very hard for my family at large to be able to deal with this. And, you know, coming out on my 30th birthday, like I want to tell you everything was just rainbow and sunshine. And oh, I love and accept you. I'm so happy for you. It was hard. It was hard, but you know, my mom's coming around. You know, she's doing all right now. Unless you're in a toxic situation where it's really hostile, give them some time. Mourning the person who they thought you were or the person they thought they raised, that's a thing that happens. And we just need to show some grace and show some patience with it while at the same time recognizing the difference between someone who's working to come around versus someone who is hostile and is actively trying to hurt you. That's a different world than someone who is just trying to, you know, not screw up and they catch themselves and they're like, oh, I'm sorry and everything. I always say I'm looking for malicious intent as the difference, right? You know, but then again, there does get to a point where after a certain number of years, you can just be effing tired of it. I had a colleague on uh, the last day of the General Assembly this year, mis- you know, misgender me on the House floor in a private conversation you know, colleague who said, sir, uh, I mean, ma'am. And I was just like, come on, we've known each other for how many years now? Come on. 
And then an hour later, I'm engaged in a debate on the House floor with the Courts of Justice Committee chairman. And he says, well, I would tell the gentleman. And I was just like, and I, I stopped this proceeding. I told the Speaker of the House, I was like, excuse me? And the Speaker of the House like looked over at that delegate and the delegate's like, huh? I said, it's delegate. Y'all changed a 400-year custom and tradition of the House of referring to each other as the gentleman from and the gentlewoman from, specifically so you wouldn't have to call me the gentlewoman from. That is an actual thing former House Speaker Kirk Cox did with the consent of his caucus, including now Speaker Gilbert, in the run-up to the 2018 session, so that they would not have to refer to me as the gentlewoman from. They changed it to delegate, and then one of them effed up on the floor this year anyway. And here's the funny thing. The last speaker that, or so the last Republican speaker of the House, he very much did refer to me as her and she on the House floor. And this speaker has referred to me as her in a debate before that him and I had on the House floor in 2019. I mean, I don't want to be naive, but I'm like, holy shit, like Danica is still dealing with this, like oh, six yeah. years yeah. in. I'm 37 years old. I've slept at the, oh, five years in. Yeah, but yeah. I know you're laughing about it now, but like, like, how does it feel in the moment? Oh, when, when I get that name, or we're not that day, when I get Miss Jenner on the house floor this year, I, you know, at first I was really upset because the delegate didn't understand what he had done and he kept going. And I just like kind of slammed my lips, half lids shut to like get the point of, I'm still not happy with you. And then, then he realized what he did. He overcompensated in his correction, right? And he's like, oh, I would tell the lady, for the, you know, it starts doing that, right? So I continue with my debate unfaced in terms of like, talking about the merits of the legislation that we were debating. I was on the south side of that vote. You know, I cast my no vote. They'll pass anyway. I walked, I got up out of my seat and I walked out of the chamber. I cussed very loudly. And, you know, he came up and he apologized to his credit, which he did. And he's like, oh, I didn't recognize who it was, you know, speaking and everything and blah, blah. And I had to explain that, like, look, when that happens, this isn't about politics and show at this point. This is about telling a trans woman that this is how your natural reaction is to her, it's very dysphoric, very dysphoric when that happens, because then you're like, what else do I have to do? So I did the only thing I thought I could do during the uh, the next recess that we had. I went into town, into Carytown, and I got bubble tea. And bubble tea makes everything better. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> we have to leave, unfortunately, we're out of time. But thank you so much for talking today. Well, thank you so much, Jeffrey, for having me on to uh, talk about Burn the Page. And that was Danica Rome. Since we spoke, she has also announced that she's running for state senate in Virginia. So you can find out more info about that race on her website. And of course, her new memoir out now is called Burn the Page. And then that other voice you heard in the voicemail that we played was from the human rights attorney, Kate Kelly. As Danica mentioned, Kate also has a book newly out that's called Ordinary Equality, and it's all about the women and queer people who helped to shape the U.S. Constitution and Equal Rights Amendment. So that is Ordinary Equality and Burn the Page if you're looking for something new to read this summer. We are brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. Come find me and I'll see you there. Bye.